When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Learning Unlocked podcast, presented by Open Sesame. Taking a deep dive into the global world of learning and development with practical tips and tricks, along with insights from leading brands and the people that make them work. This is Learning Unlocked. Now, here's your host, Ryan Berger. My guest is Mehdi Tunsi. He is the Senior Regional Director of Open Sesame. He oversees their Europe, Middle East, and Africa offices. He's got over 20 years of experience. He's lived all over the world. I'm, I'm jealous of all of the places that he's lived. New York, Africa, Sydney. Uh, he's from France. And we're going to learn a lot from him today. Mehdi, thanks for joining us on the Learning Unlock podcast. How are you? Thank you very much. Hi, Brian. I'm very excited to be here and can't wait to be able to dive into it and, and, and share with everyone and hopefully bring something to the table. We were talking before we started recording and you described yourself as an international hobo. I, I love it. You've been at places all over the world. Let's start with how did you get into this industry? I think people are always fascinated, you know, into our guest background. So how did you gravitate to the, the learning industry? I am. Um, so I started my career actually in the IT industry. Um, and in, back in the, the mid nineties, I was working for one of the first companies in the UK that was using a new technology called the internet. Um, and that, that was amazing <laughs> back then we had 56 game modems that made all those, that noise and sales yeah. before you could connect. And, you know, it would take you about, you know, a whole night to download three pages out of any document, but it, it sounded like a great technology, but I am, um, I had a very traumatic experience. I did not enjoy working in the IT world whatsoever. And it, it's at the time I felt it was not a people oriented industry. So after a year in the IT world, I literally stumbled into an opportunity to work for a, at the time it was called training company rather than learning. So we were still talking about training. Um, and I, I was hired because I had that IT background. So I had that better understanding of technology and it was, it was the early days when well, and the training companies were exploring technology for delivering um, learning. So that, that's how I got um, into, um, into learning. I find your background fascinating because you've lived in so many different places and learning is not one size fits all. People in different parts of the world learn different ways. They engage with content differently. How, you know, again, you've lived all over the world, how are you able to help learners in each part of the globe? That, so you made a really good point here, Brian. So first of all, I am, two things I think helped me. I was very opportunistic and, you know, one has to appreciate that. So, and it's being open to opportunities and, and having the, the, the curiosity, I think helps. And, you know, in my case, allowed me to, to work and, and live in, in all those different places. Um, and I think that goes in line with like, to answer your question like learning. I think what I've, I've discovered is we do not all have the same appreciation. I mean, in fact, I'll do an analogy that I often do 
at Open Sesame and talking about food. I, you know, I, I was born and raised in the beautiful city of Lyon in France, which is the capital of French gastronomy. So, you know, anyone who knows their food should, should know that Lyon is really the birthplace of French gastronomy. And it's not the birthplace of French gastronomy because the French are amazing. It's the birthplace of French gastronomy because a long, long time ago, Lyon was a herb for craftsmen coming from all across Europe to gather and work on, at the time it was silk. But essentially what they did is they brought with them their culinary heritages into the same city. And then that's how, and Lyon's got, you know, a, a great geographical position allowing for gastronomy to find its birthplace because you had the right people at the right place with the right knowledge and being able to put that together. So what I found with them with, so you're right, there's no one size fits all and not everyone engages with learning in, in, in the same way or approaches learning in the same way. And it's interesting, especially when you look at technology, how some places tend to follow trends that, you know, might come from the UK or the US and, and other places like in Southeast Asia or Africa have been able to leapfrog a lot of the technological challenges that, you know, we've gone through in terms of learning and embracing new technology right away and making it theirs to be able to like, better adapt to learning. So it, it's, it's very contextual, I'm tempted to say. And, and as a side note, by far, when it comes to learning, one of my favorite places or the, the one that left me probably the most in awe and amazement was Africa, because it's probably of all the places I've visited, that's the, the only place where two things happen. Like, a, people are not blasé when it comes to learning. There's a, there's a real engagement in love, you know, they embrace learning in a way I have not seen before. And that's probably because I think we're too spoiled Yeah, in, you know, in Europe, in the US and we take it for granted. That's the first thing. And then the second thing is in, in your Maslow, you know, pyramid of priorities, I saw a lot of people like literally taking loans to be able to like develop their knowledge, develop their skills, their, so their competencies. So that there is a real investment in developing the self versus other places where it's seen as, oh no, not again learning, I have other things to do. And so I, that was very refreshing from, from my perspective. I think that's fascinating, the point you make. So give us a little bit more information. If you're going to help people learn in Africa and you're engaging them, what does that look like? So, but I, I, so they, and I said, that's very important. It's funny because I had that conversation recently so if you're looking at like implementing, let's say, a program around diversity, equity, and inclusion, first I'll start by understanding what people are already doing rather than saying, let me tell you what you should do, how you should do. Because more often than not, you end up learning from them and understanding that, well, actually, they might be way ahead of, you know, what we're doing and we can help them maybe in terms of, you know, having access to other tools, but what they're doing might be already spot on. So I think that the first thing is really come and especially if you're about to launch a new learning program, come with a minimum of humility in being able to understand that people in the different markets you're going into, they already, I mean, you know, they know exactly what works for them. And, and, you know, so be humble, be open to listen to like what people have to say. And then from there, you can say, okay, here are other ways where we can approach it, but not necessarily think that you have the solution and you're bringing them the solution because that's not necessarily the case. So. A continent like Asia, you know, I've always heard like they've kind of set the bar as far as learning goes. Would you agree with that? And 
what are some best practices out there that you see kind of from the leaders in learning that are setting the bar for the rest of the world? So, so see, Brian, that's a really good question. And I think that's where culture has, has a lot to do with them, um, with learning in the sense that in Asia, and in my experience was mostly um, in Southeast Asia. So out of the APAC region, even though I, I lived in, in Australia, I spent a lot of time in Singapore and Malaysia and Indonesia. Um, and then if you look at even like, you know, as far as China or, or Japan, there's a, a strong cultural um, emphasis on the fact that people will follow instructions, especially if it comes from your hierarchy, you tend to, you know, not go against what you're being asked to do. Even if it's asked nicely, the first thing to do is really to be a, a good abiding learner or employee, if that makes sense. So you would not question it's, it's you know, slightly front upon questioning or, or going against what you're being asked to do. So uh, the interesting thing is when you look at completion rates, you might think, oh, wow, that's amazing. We have you know, almost 100% completion rates. Um, but that doesn't mean that you have 100% of learning. You have people just following the instructions and doing as they're told rather than, you know, really trying to learn. That's the first thing. The, the second thing, especially looking at that part of the world is that, you know, I don't think that in, in Europe or in the US, we're necessarily ahead when it comes to technology. More often than not, they have already made like a, you know, far more advances in using technology in order to like deliver learning. So I think it's also very important to actually that you're not going to wow them because you have the, you know, all bell ringing and, you know, um, all the lights and coming up kind of technology. So, so being aware of what do they already do? How do they already use learning? They, they, the commonality I have between Asia and Africa, because mobile learning, especially that mobile learning, a lot of it have, was, was driven by the African continent and mostly because people are very pragmatic and the infrastructure is not actually the best when it came to like it, when it comes to like the internet, but when it comes to like access to computers. So a lot of things were built from scratch on the base of the mobile um, mobile uh, devices. So in Asia, it's very similar. So there's a lot of learning on the go that happens, and people um, are have probably embedded that in their workflow far more than we have in other um, parts of the world. More of learning unlocked is coming up after this. Diversity, equity, and inclusion continues to be a top priority for businesses everywhere. Open Sesame has created a survey that will give you insight into where your organization stands on diversity. Aside from being educational, this survey is a powerful tool to help you understand areas of improvement and spark conversations about strategies for creating a more inclusive and equitable workplace. After you take the short survey, you'll get access to Open Sesame's DEI Toolkit, an online hub where you can find additional resources. Visit opensesame.com today to start your survey. Back to Learning Unlocked. Here's Brian Berger. The pandemic accelerated remote learning, right? We couldn't get together in person. So remote learning is even more important. What are the areas of content that you're seeing that are really resonating with learners right now? So, so that's, a, that's a very interesting um, thing because the, over the past year and probably 18 months, there's been strong emphasis on, you know, things like working remotely, managing remotely engaging people. But the, the other side of the coin, which is I think far more interesting and it, 
to a certain extent has been probably accelerated by the pandemic, but I think has always been latent, just that there's not been enough emphasis on it, is around well-being, is around mindfulness, is around work-life balance. Um, uh, for me, that in the small, in the same bucket, I would put things like inclusion, diversity, um, you know, building psychological safety. All of those topics have become far more important, especially because now that you know all the talks around the Great Resignation, and and the Great Resignation has come for many reasons. But some of the the factors to it are the fact that a lot of people have been questioning, you know, their lifestyle. Is it worth me spending ten hours a day in a job that maybe does not fulfill me? In the way, I don't know, becoming a, a painter or, you know, a, a working uh, in a woodshop would. And so a lot of it has been triggered by that lack of well-being and that was not addressed early on by organizations. What are you hearing from global learners as far as the information that is most memorable for them? Like I say, you know, we can put all this information out there. You mentioned earlier, you can see a completion rate. But it doesn't mean they retain the information and apply it to their job every day. So what's the information out there that you think people are retaining the most? Is it the health and wellness? Is it the DEI? Like, what are the things that people are retaining? And how do you get that feedback? Because you're trying to get feedback from people literally around the globe. It's not just a certain you know, sector of the, of the world. No, you, you, so Brian, you made a really good point at the very beginning of um, our discussion when you talked about a there's no one size fits all, and I think it's very important to to bear in mind. And in fact, recently we worked on a with the, one of the experts um, here in the UK, but has a a survey that is a global survey called the the Global Sentiment Survey, and looking at the the data, and it's really purely data driven, looking at what and where people put their priorities when it came to learning. For example, it was very interesting to see that. Depending on the geography, some geography would probably like, you know, put forward things like anything that would be linked to kind of collaboration and being able to exchange with others and learn in a more um, collaborative way, while other, other geographies were more looking at the personalization of learning. So me, myself, and I versus we as a group. And I think that, that you know, that is very reflective of some of the culture. So you'd see. Africa and South America, for example, leaning more towards things around collaboration. And then the US and the UK leaning more towards personalization. And that really reflects that some cultural societies are probably more driven by the self and the individual, while others, it, there's more of a, a community function that is still very important and reflected in some of those priorities they had in terms of learning. And then, you know, let's be honest, we learn from others much more than we, you know, we learn on, on our, I mean, on ourselves. And even if we, and I appreciate that, you know, we promote um, self-learning courses and any learning courses, but the, some of the trends we're seeing now is what we call core learning, where, where before you do a course on your online course on your own, now people would do it in like small groups of two and three, so they can bounce ideas one of the other. So I, I think that the pandemic has highlighted two things that yes, we can learn on our own and that's possible. But we still need to reflect and bounce ideas off other people. So there, there, there's no, there's no one size fits all. Is you know you put it really nicely. Well, and some people see these trainings as a check the box. Like, oh, geez, I got to take this course and it's required. And 
how do you change the mindset of it's required versus I really want to learn this? And it's, see, and, and that's a very good point you're making, but I think it, it comes down to um, two things. One is culture, and that's why I was mentioning the example of Africa, because people do not see learning or training as that's something that is added to my plate and I'm already overwhelmed. But they see that I, that is the shortcut for me to be the best version of myself. So then I can really enjoy other things or I can enjoy my job e even better. So I think that the challenges that a lot of organizations have to, to work on is building a, a culture where learning is being seen as an enhancer and not allowing people to be the best version of themselves. And the, in fact, interestingly enough, I find that very fascinating that um, it started last year with Microsoft, you know, implementing like a four days week in their Japan um, offices. Now in the Middle East, the UAE has announced that they've sh completely shifted their weekend. that used to be Friday, Saturday for their local religious regions to now having a work week that starts on the Monday, but finishes at lunchtime on a Friday, so four and a half week. Uh, in the UK, there's um, 30 large corporations that have started implementing the four days week. Um, in Iceland, they spent three years doing like a four days week. And after three years, the outcome is an increase of 40% in productivity. And I'm mentioning that because that's where learning pretty fits in. It's in being able to demonstrate that if you're able to do your job better, then you waste less time trying to do things in a way that is not efficient. And so that shift, that mind shift of you know, being able to understand that learning is not something we add to your plate, but rather a tool we're giving you to be better and far more efficient. And it is the, you know, the, some of the challenges we, we help organizations with. I find that efficiency schedule that you just mentioned fascinating. Do you think we could move towards that kind of a schedule globally where people say, you know what, I could be more efficient. Cause I've heard from a lot of people that even during the pandemic, when they're working from home and they don't have someone walking down the hall and knocking on their door and sitting down and chit chatting when they can really focus and they're in their own little space working, they can be more efficient. Do you think we could see kind of the work week? change to something along the lines of what you just described? Well, there's a few things. I have the bias. Remember, I'm French. In France, <laughs> we have a 35 hours a week. So the interesting thing is that France is one of the countries that has a lot of holidays. Our German neighbors have more holidays than we have in all fairness, if you include public holidays. What is interesting is that France and Germany are not doing badly at all in the world ranking in terms of economies. And and, and for me, there's enough data there already to prove that you don't need to do a 60 hours a week to be a thriving um, company or a economy. That's the, the, the first thing. The second part to your question is that we at a, we literally are at a crossroad because on one hand, you have a lot of organizations that are trying to work out what's their new normal. What's that new hybrid work? Is it, are we office based? Are we hundred percent remote? Are we in between to your point? Yes, I mean, you know, having the uh, flexibility or being allowed to work from home and not having a lot of the distractions you had in the office is important. But the other side of the coin is, and in, that will vary according to the demographic as well. So it's very interesting when you look at the data, but the human interactions, the coaching part of, you know, working and learning in the workplace and being able to, the creativity aspect of learning where you need to actually, a lot of any creative idea and, you know, brainstorm happens 
in a completely unscripted environment. And that requires two things is being together and having other people. And it's just, that's really the essence of it. So I personally believe that, yes, we're moving towards, and I hope we'll see more and more countries and companies moving to a, a work model where it's no longer your nine to five Monday to Friday. And we know already, and we have like, you know, the past 18 months have proven that you can work from anywhere. You do not need to be in the office to do a good job. If anything, there's been an increase of productivity in, in many things, but we also have seen that there's a risk of burnout and people, you know, completely losing the connections that allow us, we, we, we are a social species and you know, that that's, we, we were not designed not to interact with people. We're not hermits. We're not, we, that's not how people are designed. So it, it is a case of, you know, finding the balance, but uh, there are more and more now organizations and there is enough data now to like really lean towards the fact that a shorter work week with more flexibility cannot be a competitive advantage. More of Learning Unlocked is coming up after this. Open Sesame helps companies develop the world's most productive and admired workforces. How? By having the most comprehensive catalog of e-learning courses from the world's top publishers, publishers like TED and Harvard, and having courses that cover learning topics like diversity, equity, and inclusion, leadership development, safety and compliance, and wellness. Try a course for free today by visiting opensesame.com backslash course of the week. Back to Learning Unlocked. Here's Brian Berger. Yeah, and I think the burnout topic is an interesting one because, you know, I know it's not one size fits all, but that does seem to be something that is a global issue, right? No matter where you are, Africa, America, Europe, if you're working too much and your entire life is just about work and there's no work-life balance, burnout is an issue, right? I mean, would you agree that that's a global issue? It's not just a regional issue? Oh, no, that's a, that's a, I think that that's a global epidemic. I think we have the tools and we, you know, there's a lot of things that can be done to prevent it, but I think there's, I mean, there are still a lot of very toxic work culture. And, and if you allow me to say a lot of them are, you know, very much what come from the U S where, you know, working long hours, being like first in last out is too often still worn as a badge of honor. And what is actually, it should be exactly the opposite. Um, it, it, and uh, I think that as I said, I think that we're having now enough examples around to be able to see that actually it's not those who work the longest and the hardest that, I mean, that's the other thing. I, I think we have to move from working hard to working smart and working smart does not require you to be, you know, have four hours sleep, um, and just live on like, um, cereals and, and water because they, they are, you know, like, there's more to life than that. Before I let you go, uh, I think you just made a great point about working smart. You know, you want to work hard, but you want to work smart. As far as global learning and the landscape of global learning, what do you think the, the future holds? I mean, if we go back two years ago, none of us saw a pandemic coming. It really shifted a lot of things. What do you see the future of learning and work? What does that look like globally? I, so I, I'd like to think, especially looking at the, the current 
geopolitical situation. I'd, I'd like to think that there would be more human leadership, more emotional intelligence being built in leadership and more leaders being able to, you know, demonstrate that you can be, you know, you can be um, vulnerable. It's okay to be vulnerable. It's okay to be emotional and we're not machines. And it's okay to love, you know, take a break, pause. So my hope is that there would be more humanity in, in work. Um, because I think that will lead to a lot, a way better outcome in terms of organization. And I think to a certain extent, even if you look at the, the consumers are way smarter than they've ever been. And I think people would be buying far more with, you know, their hearts and, and, you know, prison than just with their wallet and um, going forward. So I'm hoping to see, yeah, more compassion, um, in, in the, in the world, in the workplace. Last question. I'm going to live vicariously through you for a minute. You're, you're a self-described international hobo. Of mm -hmm. all of the places you've traveled in the world, what's your favorite city that you've been to? And, and, you know, I'm a foodie. So like, give me something that, oh, I just, when I'm in this city, I love to eat X. So, okay. That, that, that's a, that's a real tough one. So I, <laughs> I'd say, I'd say a few things by default. I, and I take it as my birthright, I've got standards. Um, and what, what I mean by I have standards is I'm a sweet tooth, but I love cheese as well. Um, and therefore, as, a, uh, you know, as an ad anecdote, when I moved to the UK and for the first time ever, I discovered cheddar and people were calling it cheese. It took a while for my head to <laughs> compute that. How could that be cheese? You know, I grew up in a region of France that's got about just over 220 types of cheese. Wow. And then I was given that block of plastic and told, this is cheese. So it, it took me a while to complete <laughs> So, uh, but at the same time, same with, our, um, I said, I have a sweet tooth chocolate. Uh, you know, I, when I, when we moved to New York, I remember like, having colleagues like giving me Hershey's and saying, that's chocolate. Yeah. And then I tried it and I was insulted. <laughs> that's not chocolate. That's, I mean, that's a heart attack in, in the waiting. That's, you know, my, like, that's me becoming diabetic by within like three months of living here. I, I, I didn't think that was, to, and not because, and just for the record, before people think I'm overly chauvinistic, not because there's great French chocolate, but because France is surrounded by Belgium and Switzerland. Right. So you benefit from really good chocolate by default. So your standards all of a sudden are, are risen. But to answer your question, so when it comes to savory, favorite place in the world is Kuala Lumpur. I love Malaysian food. And then there's a big debate in the region between Kuala Lumpur and Singapore as into like who created laksa. People of Singapore would tell you that laksa, the real laksa comes from Singapore. And, and for those who don't know, laksa is a, an, a broth with like noodles, and then you can have it with chicken or prawns and uh, an egg, depending if you're a, a veggie or, or not. And, and then what they call sambal, which is a very spicy, hot and local um, mixture. But then there's coconut milk that just suit the, um, you know, how hot it is. And I absolutely adore that. So I'd say Malaysian food and especially laksa when it comes to savory, when it comes to sweet, I'm sorry to say that I'm very chauvinistic. I think there's no better desserts than the desserts we have in France. And don't get me started because there's a probably, a, a, we could do a whole new episode just around desserts <laughs> and, uh, and I could entertain you.
Well, that sounds so good. And thank you for sharing that with us. Uh, Mehdi Tunsi, the Senior Regional Director for Open Sesame Europe, Middle East and Africa. This has been an informative conversation and uh, keep up the great work and thank you so much. Thanks, Emily and Brian. Very much appreciate that. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to Learning Unlocked, presented by Open Sesame. Download this and every episode on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Learning Unlocked is produced by Griggs Productions.